This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Today's conversation is part of our summer mini-series called Showing Up. Each episode, we are exploring a different aspect of what it means to be faithfully present in our current day. In our last episode, we talked about curiosity and being open in these difficult, sometimes difficult relationships where there are divides. And Hannah, I so enjoyed that conversation with Rachel. And again, super challenging, been thinking about how I can connect with people in these ways as she modeled and explained. You know, I had the same response. And Part of what I took away from our conversation with Rachel was that she was crossing massive divides culturally, religiously, ethnically, culturally. And it kind of put the divides that I'm struggling with in a bit of perspective, um, that it does feel very large and serious, but also there's a lot that we can use to bridge these divides that we're feeling even within our own culture, maybe even within our own families and churches, that there is shared um, perspective to a degree, and we can kind of lean into that. I appreciated the focus on finding those places where you are similar and where you can share life. I thought that seemed very hopeful and um and and there was such a curiosity element there that I thought was so important of um, tell me this about how you live and how you think. And um, I think that that is something that we've talked about quite a bit over the years on persuasion. How do we have good conversations? How do we learn how other people think? And and that helps sharpen our own thinking and our own beliefs. It absolutely does. At the same time, though. Part of good conversation means recognizing where differences do exist. Like we can be open and we can be curious and we can um, kind of engage each other from our different places and and have this uh, hospitality within our conversations. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, there are going to be differences and there has to be a way for us to carefully and charitably communicate, well, actually, I think something different than you do about that. And it doesn't have to be a threat, but I still want to be known. And part of being vulnerable means being able to say what I actually think in a way that maybe can be received or at least acknowledged that there is a difference. 
I wonder if that's where so much conversational and relational angst comes from in terms of these differences and divides, because you want to show up with your whole self, but you're not quite sure, how do I share that I think something different? Um, But really, that's something that we, we can grow in and we can learn about and make it maybe at least not quite so scary and not quite so um, angsty if we can learn better ways of communicating. Recently, we connected with Rebecca McLaughlin about how to communicate our beliefs with clarity and thoughtfulness. Rebecca, we are so thrilled that you could spend time with us today at Persuasion. Welcome. Thank you. We're so thrilled you're here. Well, we want to make sure that everyone who's listening knows a bit about you. So could you just share a bit about yourself? Um, And really, I'd love to know how you made your way from the UK to the US. Just tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, well, how I made my way from the UK to the US was by marrying a guy from Oklahoma. But I give that you this would do it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I come from the UK, grew up um, there, and honestly never had any desire to leave. Partly because I just I, I love my homeland, and partly because the lack of gospel resulting in the UK, at least compared to the US, is um, far, far less there than there is here. Mm. So, as someone who is you know, passionate about um, telling people about Jesus and having people grow in discipleship and um, apologetics and all these all these good things the last thing I would have thought of was was moving to the US but um the Lord has a, a sense of humor I think um yeah Brian and I <laughs> met right at the end of my PhD in English literature and uh, middle of his PhD in engineering and about all we have in common is those first three letters of the subjects that we <laughs> um and I was headed off to seminary funnily enough we dated for a couple of years and then got married and he was very keen to move to the US. I feel like I, I'm continually meeting Americans who say they wish they lived in England. Yeah. I, I married the one American who really didn't want to live in England. <laughs> so my uh, thinking was that he really was not happy in England. We should at least see if I would be unhappy in America. <laughs> and his view was it's hard being American in England, but if you're English in America, people really like you. So this it was true. better. <laughs> All that being said, God moves in, in mysterious ways. And yeah, we've been here for 13 years, around 13 years. Uh, and it, it's been remarkable. I've, I've had incredible opportunities to, for many years, to work with Christian professors at leading secular universities mm. in places like Harvard and MIT and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, uh, and to both help them with how they communicate their faith in relationship with their work, but more importantly, actually learn from them about how they integrate their faith with their work and after nine years of doing that talking with world leaders and philosophy to psychology to history I felt like I had a, a bit of a roadmap of, of where the questions are and where the conversations are at at the academic level when it comes to Christianity and, and all these different disciplines and so I wrote a book called Confronting Christianity to try and share that roadmap with <laughs> with other people uh, and just to expose people to some of the extraordinary Christian scholars who got us raised up in all of these fields who are literally world-class experts in sorts of things that are supposed to have discredited or disproved the Christian faith, um, but actually are also very serious followers of Jesus. 
Rebecca, there's two things that stick out to me in what you just shared. Number one, I, I do want to affirm that it's easier, more than likely easier to be British in the United States. Um, <laughs> you have instant credibility just because of your accent. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's the most ridiculous thing, but we just think by listening to you that you are automatically smarter regardless of whether you have a PhD or not. So we will believe you when you say things in a British accent. This, this I found, although I will say, whereas my IQ gets an unfair bump moving to the US, my, uh, the extent to which I'm funny decreases <laughs> because what? humor, well, humor depends on knowing exactly where the cultural line is and sort uh -huh. of putting it slightly or the specific pronunciation of a word or meaning of a word in a particular context. I'll make really funny jokes over here and people just look at me like, <laughs> that word doesn't exist here or you don't pronounce it that way or whatever it is. Anyway, I'm only slightly resentful. But carry on, Hannah. You were going to say something? Yes. The other thing that catches my attention is you said you are passionate about sharing uh, your faith and sharing Jesus with people. And honestly, I think that that is something that a lot of people struggle with um, and, and they, they long for and they maybe envy, but there's this kind of hesitance, um, this reticence mm -hmm. of being fully themselves in what they love in front of um, their neighbors or their relatives even. And there's this kind of um, holding back mm -hmm. of things that we believe, things that we profess um, and claim to be true, but we're just not quite sure how to be open or vulnerable or passionate about them. So that's why I, I particularly think that your work is giving us a bit, as you mentioned, a roadmap through your own process um, to do that. And, and it seems to me that apologetics isn't simply about convincing other people so much as giving us the confidence to live openly with our faith. Yeah, and when I say I'm passionate, I don't mean I'm not scared. Uh, it's this is something that I have to talk with my my girls about. I've got two daughters who are, are just eleven and nearly nine, and then a son who's nearly three. He's quite careful yet, but the, the nine and eleven year old, they're already having com hard conversations with friends at school where they're bumping up against the ways in which Christianity to their friends is not just sort of strange and deluded, but actually offensive and immoral. And, and one of the things that I've been saying to them is, hey, these conversations are only going to get worse <laughs> over the coming years as, as you get older. And the fact that you find it hard and upsetting uh, and that it feels vulnerable is not evidence that you're doing it wrong or that, you know, it's, it's not evidence of anything bad necessarily. I feel that way too. And... I think one of the things that, that helped me um, when I was a college student, I mean, funnily enough, for the last more than decade in my life, I actually have no choice but to tell somebody when I first meet them that I'm a Christian because they ask what I do. And there's like really no way to explain it without, without saying that. But before I was in any kind of sort of professional Christian ministry, I used to try and just introduce the fact that I was a Christian in the very first conversation so that I wouldn't chicken out later you know it's, it's always easy i think to think you know one day when i know this person really well when we have you know gone on family vacations together then i'll mention the fact that i'm a follower of jesus and i think the life is only found in him uh the, i'm not saying that that's never the right approach but for me i'm instinctively a bit of a coward actually so 
in some ways it, it's been easier for me to just introduce that right from the get-go and and have conversations on that basis rather than sort of wondering if one day I can slip this in sometime. I appreciate that you are acknowledging the the emotional factor that comes with having open conversations about faith because like you said just because you're passionate doesn't mean that you aren't fearful and I think that there's a presumption that we will someday get to the point where there's zero care, concern, fear <laughs> that what we say may not be received well. And so if we're waiting for the day that we don't feel uncomfortable with those feelings and the concern, we will never get there and these conversations would never happen. So do you do you have any sense of um becoming more comfortable in it like is there is there anything that has improved in terms of your conversations over the years as you've um moved forward despite the fear that you have yeah i think one of the tricky things that that we have to navigate and i think this is especially true in our particular cultural context today is that some of the reasons, in fact, many of the reasons that our non-Christian friends or family members will have for thinking that Christianity is evil and offensive and wrong are actually really good reasons. So that there'll be an extent to which we may have friends who, for example, are passionate believers in human equality and who feel heartbroken and outraged by the way that Black people have been treated over the centuries in this country, you know, especially in, um, in the time of slavery and, and segregation, but, but even subsequently as well. And they will have seen white Christians being very complicit in this. And so they will have a, a hostility toward us saying, especially if we are like, like me, if, you know, if you're a white person who's also an evangelical, they'll have a an instinctive hostility to us and to the message that we're bringing is actually founded on something that's completely right, <laughs> which is which is horror and disgust at, at, at racial um, oppression and uh, the the evil of racism, essentially. And that's not them hating Christianity. That's them hating the sins of Christians over the years. And so I think it's helpful helpful for me as I've learned more and studied more and both in terms of scriptures and in terms of of, of history to be able to pinpoint okay here are the things that that actually my friends are right about and I need to fully acknowledge that they're right Uh, being kind of defensive of my tribe is is not actually defending Jesus at all it's in fact just defending my my tribe and the sins of my tribe Um, but at the same time as I've studied more in the scriptures and as I've learned more about history and, and you know, current, current sociology, once you realize that actually the most typical Christian in America today is a black woman, person, the kind of person demographically most likely to be a very serious follower of Jesus who goes to church every week, reads the Bible, prays and holds to you know, core evangelical beliefs, whether or not that label would be used, is actually a black woman. That then just changes the the framework of the conversation somewhat. So I think what's been helpful to me has been 
you know, with, with a number of issues, working through, okay, what are the things that my friends hate that they actually rightly should hate? And that actually it's on the basis of, of Christian ethics that they should hate those things. But, you know, where do, where do I need to appropriately acknowledge the, the sins of, of my own tribe? And where can I also give, give them information that will help them to see that this is something not that ultimately should point them away from Jesus? And, and to me, it's these hot button issues that... Um, you know, are dividing us as communities, families, as a nation that make it really hard to navigate questions of faith. Because as you said, Rebecca, so often Christians and the, the established church has failed at these conversations and in very real ways that can be, we can point to. And, you know, I think that's what's so helpful about your work and particularly your your latest book, um, The Secular Creed, where you really get into the weeds a bit with these conversations, um, whether it's race or sexuality. Um, in my experience, it's these questions that keep me from wanting to talk about my Christianity because I'm very happy to talk to them about um, you know, a God who is just or a God who loves them, but it's the, the cultural kind of um, atmosphere around these hot button issues that make it really hard. Yeah, and I, I think that's especially true when it comes to questions of sexuality and of gender. And what's happening, one of the main things I'm trying to do in, in the secular creed is actually help people, help, help Christians disentangle questions of, of racial justice and equality on the one hand from questions of sexual identity on, and gender identity on the other and sort of diagnose how they've all got tangled up in the first place, which, you know, the bottom line is actually Christian sin. Um, but because when we look at the Bible, it actually points us in completely opposite directions when it comes to racial justice and equality and how it strongly affirms and is actually the basis for our belief in, in universal equality, regardless of, of race or nationality. So it pulls us in a completely one direction when it comes to racial diversity and love across racial difference. It actually points a completely different direction when it comes to affirming, um, for example, same-sex marriage or um, a, a gender identity that's different than, than it's that, that we were born with. And so I think one of the things that, that we need to do for ourselves, but also as we enter into conversation with friends who don't share our beliefs, is actually be able to disentangle these two things, to see how historically they've been tangled up, to see what the Bible actually says about all of these issues and then to be able to present a sort of gospel-centered, Jesus-rich vision of why we believe what we believe. And actually, how much is lost if we pull the Christian foundations out? Because I, I think for many of our friends today, they think that belief in universal human equality, belief that men and women are fundamentally morally equal, belief that the, the historically oppressed should be protected and not trampled, Etc. Etc. All these things they think that they're just self-evident truths. You don't need any kind of particular religious foundation for believing any of this stuff. In fact, you're probably better off without one. Actually, if you look both historically and if you look at what even non-Christian historians and philosophers are saying today, you'll quickly realise that that these are all specifically Christian beliefs, and that if we pull Christianity out of the foundation, we don't get a, a better moral foundation for universal equality and love across racial difference, et cetera, et cetera. We actually get a moral of this. Something that's really challenging 
from what you're saying, Rebecca, is that you're, it, it seems like you are calling us to do a lot of inner work that maybe we haven't taken the time to do. You mentioned disentangling these ideas, even within our own minds. And I think about the, just for myself, the lack of time that I have spent specifically on, have I worked through these things in my own mind and heart? And I may have a sense of where I land on these things, but I have to admit, it's not as if I have it so sorted out that I feel ready to have these kinds of conversations, which is why I would tend to shy away. And so the challenge to to basically dig in and, and do the work, I think that's a good one. Um, and I... I feel challenged in a good way from what you're saying here about doing the needed thought process that would allow me to be ready for these conversations. Yeah, and to be clear, when I when I talk about doing that work, I I'm personally really not an expert on anything. I have a PhD in in prisons and Shakespeare, um, which nobody's asking me to speak about. Funnily enough. And, and which, frankly, I've forgotten most of what I ever knew. What I do do is I figure out who the experts are, and then I try to learn from them. And I try to learn from them, actually, whether they're Christians or not. I try to, it, when I'm trying to get a handle on on the truth of the situation as far as I can, one of the first things I'll do is go and look at what do people who are, frankly, hostile to my position say about this? And so like, let's listen to the atheists, let's listen to the agnostics, let's listen to, listen to people who do not have an ideological motivation for agreeing with me on, on this issue and see what they're saying. Then I'll look at what, what some leading Christian experts are saying and try to find actual experts rather than people who just, you know, have to talk about something, whether or not they have an expertise. And, and there you'll find, okay, so there's some overlap, in fact, between what the, the atheists are saying and what the, the Christian academics are saying. So that's probably... you confident about where they overlap they're both saying the same thing you know and then you can see the the differences but the reality is none of us has the time to become an expert in every relevant field and there's almost a move that's being made at the moment in some circles to say you know the sort of do your research approach which says don't you know don't trust those experts out there do your own research and i'm thinking well the vast majority of us have neither the time nor the training any valid research in any of the fields might be wanting to do that. So what we're much better to do is find accredited experts and learn from their research. And what I try to do in, in my writing is sort of just take that one step further to say, okay, I've done the work of finding those experts and harvesting their research. And then I've tried to sort of package it in a way that would enable you to sit down with something like the Secular Creed and with your Bible open actually, and to look and say, okay, is this lining up with what the Bible says? Because if it's not, it's junk. But if it is, then that, that hopefully will help you to, to get to the point where you, you've worked through some of these issues for yourself and are able to talk to a friend, but without you having to burn a quote, do the research. <laughs> and, and I love that in that you're modeling something for us. You're modeling a way of listening and gathering information um, before just landing on a position. And, you know, a, being a product of American evangelicalism and having grown up here, I can tell you that it is a vastly different 
um, engagement with these kind of cultural issues. We tend to be more um, politically motivated in some ways toward getting the right um, getting the right position and making sure we stand for that position. Um, within the broader culture that we witness for that position. And there's not as much attention given to how do we get to that position? <laughs> how, how do we go through the process? And so I think it's fascinating that, you know, coming in from outside, you also are a little freer than the rest of us because we have a, a level of baggage, to be just quite frank, a level of angst. And, and folks I know that want to more thoughtfully engage these questions at least within American evangelicalism, have to first distance themselves um, from what we would term the culture wars, but at the risk of leaving the conversation altogether. And there's not a viable way forward to say, you know, I can stay in this conversation. I'm just going to change the way that I'm yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah, and I, one of the, the reasons... Um, that I wrote the secular creed was actually that you know those yard signs that at least are in my neighborhood maybe in yours as well that say things like you know in this house we believe that black lives matter love is love women's rights are human rights and then there's usually a kind of handful of other claims that depending on the yard sign may or may not be there is, do those exist in, in your parts of the world yeah so so people look and I think as Christians we look at a sign like that and it's sort of presented to us as a package deal and in my experience, a lot of Christians will go one of two ways. They'll either look at that and think, okay, I know that black lives truly do matter and that black people have often been treated as if their lives didn't matter historically. And so, and, and I've been told that all these other claims kind of are wrapped up in all together. So it's sort of all, all you know, buy it or take it or leave it. So, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll grab that sign and I'll, I'll hammer it into, into my yard or people will take the approach of saying, well, I know that there are certain things on this sign that the Bible doesn't affirm, and so I don't want to hear any of it. I'm going to knock it down. Like, I mean, maybe not literally, but at least in my mind, I discount the whole thing. And I actually think from if we're going to be truly biblical, we need to work through the, the claims on those yard signs with our Bibles open and see where the Bible does and doesn't agree. And actually, it's a much more complex picture that we'll come up with. Not one that, that lands us in um, any kind of new theological spaces, actually, but ones that bring us back to what the church believed from the first, which you know, when, when it comes to those three claims that I mentioned, Black Lives Matter, Love's Love and Women's Rights, Human Rights, you know, Christianity from the first was a profoundly multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural movement that was, that was demanded by Jesus from the get-go, you know, literal day one of the Church of Pentecost from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping together. When it comes to the second claim that, that love is love, actually Christianity was born into the Greco-Roman Empire, which was a place, at least for, for men, at least for sort of wealthy men, uh, of massive sexual freedom, where it was perfectly reasonable and allowed for men to sleep with their male or female slaves, for them to sleep with women they weren't married to, for them to sleep with men they weren't married to, actually. Like it was not a we sometimes think they were sort of basically Victorian sexual ethics up until the 1960s and then everything changed. But actually, Christianity was really weird in the first century for saying that sex only belonged in marriage between a man and a woman. And it, that's, that sounds really weird today again, but not for the first time forever, you know. Um, and then that third claim that women's rights are human rights, 
which is is code for abortion rights, uh, uh, women's rights in, in this country today. From the first, Christianity was a movement against the abandonment of babies, which was, again, very common in, in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And it was a movement for women's rights and equality, actually, which is why there have always been more Christian women than men. And that is, as far as I can tell from search of researchers <laughs> whom I've listened to, that's true across time and across space. <laughs> you know? um, so, so actually, Christianity is the foundation for women's rights being Right, not for a woman's right to have an abortion because the, the same biblical motivation for believing that women are fundamentally equal to men also applies to the human dignity and equality of an unborn baby. Yes, and I think, Rebecca, what you're describing really is um, a way forward for those of us who do want to show up with our faith, that we do want to live openly with our families and friends in our communities. We do want to testify to goodness, but we're coming from spaces that are so, um, like you said, it's like a package deal. And, and we're almost like, well, not that one, but yes, that one. But And, and we really just don't have a lot of um, models for this kind of way of, of saying you can untangle these things. You, you can think through these things. It can be complicated. It's okay for it to be um, a complicated process. I'm curious, um, just to follow up with that, is how do you see this working out in community? Like, obviously we read books, we tend to process our, on our own, but how would you like to see these conversations move forward in community, particularly now that we're trying to regather and we're trying to be together again as believers um, and then taking that witness mm. beyond the walls mm. of the church. Yeah, no, very helpful. I think one of the, the delights and privileges we have as Christians is to be part of a of a genuinely diverse Christian community. And when I say that, I, I mean diverse in all sorts of different ways. And and the exact way that will look will depend on where we live. And I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we have a, a very diverse population, not least because people move here from all over the world. <laughs> so I, I can sit down on Sunday at, at church and be next to, you know, a PhD student at MIT who grew up in China and a, a Nepalese woman who's part of the, the Nepalese congregation that also meets in our church um, who stays home with her kids or, you know, a, a white woman who grew up in Florida. Like there's just a, a whole lot of diversity in terms of just where people come from there racial, ethnic, national background. So I had the opportunity to, to learn from people with different experiences of life, depending on literally where, where they, they come from. Um, I have the opportunity as well to learn from people's different life experiences. So um, I'm someone, myself, I've always been more attracted to women than to men. That's been a big kind of part of my experience um, and has you know, shaped some of the ways which I think, but it's, it's super helpful for me to have like one of my good friends at church who's a single guy who's basically exclusively attracted to men and remaining single out of devotion to the Lord and, you know, knows um, what the Bible says and believes that Jesus' love is, is going to be better than anyone else's. Um, but his experience of life as a, as a single guy in his, his late 30s um, is going to be different from mine. Um, and so there are just all sorts of opportunities, I think, even in our immediate communities 
to learn from people who are different from us. And and to some extent, I mean that that's language that we'll hear from our, our non-Christian friends sort of day in, day out. And we can therefore as Christians be a little bit suspicious or skeptical of it. You know, does that mean if you're learning from people's perspective, does that mean a relativizing truth? You don't believe there's any real absolute truth out there. Actually, I think the opposite, especially within the church, the more we learn from the diverse um, just life experiences of other believers, the more gloriously the, the ultimate and exclusive and universal truth of Jesus shines. Because he's not just true for me as a white European privileged woman who you know, has moved to America. <laughs> he's also true in Nepal, and he's also true in India, and he's also true in Africa, and he's also true for the, the single mother who's struggling to get by, and he's also true for the elderly man who feels lonely, and he's also true for the young child who's being foster cared for um, by a family in our, in our church. So I think we actually see the, the uniqueness, the, the beauty, the universal truth of Jesus more brightly when we are truly in community with people who have very different experiences from us. Rebecca, that is the perfect cap to this conversation. What a good word and encouragement. And we are so grateful that you would come and visit with us and and share a bit about your work and I'd say your expertise. Um, and I will make sure that everyone gets um, links to find your work and your books out on our show notes. But thank you so much for coming on to Persuasion and talking with us. Thanks for having me. That's certainly a lot for me to unpack and to continue to think about. Um, I know there's a lot of conversation that still needs to happen around these ideas, not just with people that maybe we have differences with, but those of us who maybe share some of these um, common perspectives. We need to learn from each other how to communicate those well. If you are listening in and you have had experiences that have worked well for you, that you've been able to communicate well across these divides, what kinds of things would you share with us about bridging these differences without losing yourself or without losing your particular uh, set of beliefs? We'd love for you to share that with us um, either on Instagram or Twitter and to kind of sweeten the pot for that conversation. We have several copies of Rebecca's book that we're able to give away. If you will share this episode and share what ways that you have found successful or at least helpful in bridging these divides in conversation. Um, Tag us in it and we'll enter you into a drawing for those copies of Rebecca's book, The Secular Creed. As always, you can join us in conversation in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum. Um, Members um, gain access to that by a $5 a month donation to the work of Christ and Pop Culture, where we can support these conversations, as well as a whole slate of articles and other resources to help you navigate um, your living out your faith in a secular world. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen, and it's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can find all of our shows at ChristandPopCulture.com, or you can search for them at iTunes. Thanks so much to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. 
an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. Name.